and Juliet first. So good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. Hey, by the way, if you're new, uh, we're so glad that you've taken time out of your weekend uh, to join us and to be part of what we're doing here this morning. Uh, I promise you over the next half an hour, we're going to take good care of you. Um, we are in the middle of a series called The Good and Beautiful God, and we've been in this series for like the last seven weeks. And so if you're new here today, I don't want you to feel like you're trying to catch up. You can actually go to our website and catch up on the previous talks and, and, and download our podcast. And so don't feel like you need to catch up. But I want you to be present in this moment because I think, I think this talk will be really good for all of us today, including myself. And uh, if you haven't been part of this series, The Good and Beautiful God addresses myths and mistruths that we have and we believe to be true about God. I don't care where you've come from or where, what part of walk of life you've been in, you've been taught things about God that aren't true at all. And unfortunately, many of us believe those things. We believe them to be, be true, and what we get is we get this weird, odd relationship that doesn't seem to make sense to us or to God or even to others for that matter. And so we've taken the last eight weeks, the last eight weeks to address some of the most serious issues and serious misconceptions and misunderstandings that we have about God. And so today we're going to continue this series about the good and beautiful God. And I believe uh, this will be life changing in many ways. So would you pray for me? Uh, I need it today. Need help, need strength. Uh, if you'd pray for me, I'd appreciate it. Lord, we do give thanks for this time of teaching. Uh, I thank you that we are able to be present in this moment. I pray that you would speak to our minds, our hearts, that uh, if this is the first time experiencing church, that uh, you would make this a, a great, great time, a great experience, and that we would learn something new about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I can remember when I was a little kid, and my mother was, uh, she was getting ready for a garage sale. And she was working with our neighbor, uh, who's my friend's mom, and they were working together. They were tagging stuff and getting things ready for this garage sale. And I can remember my friend and I, we were swinging on the swing. It was dark out, and, and I don't know what came over me, but I just had this sentimental moment as a young child. It was so sentimental. I remember it like it was yesterday. I started thinking about all the important people in my life. I started thinking about my friend next to me. His name was Tony. Tony and I were swinging together. And then I started thinking about my parents and my brother and sister. And I thought about my cousins. And I thought about everybody who I cared about so much. And I thought to myself, what is a way, what is a way that I can express to them my deep appreciation for their, their, their whether they're a father, a cousin, a friend, whatever they are, how can I express how much I love them? And so I remember pondering this question, and the next day, my mom and I went down to this gas station. She got gas. We called it the Stop and Rob. I don't know why they call it the Stop and Rob or where they got that name, but that's what we called it, the Stop and Rob. And so we went in, and I can remember my mom was paying for gas or whatever she was doing, and I was perusing the aisles when I had this electric epiphany that met with my um, uh, need for generosity. And staring in front of me was a box of bubble gum. And I don't know if it was the yellow bright wrappers or the blue ends or the pink lettering that, that, that is written all over the bubble gum, but I thought, that's it. That is it. I will give everybody that I love a piece of bubble gum. Yeah, it was like a sweet moment. And I thought, well, here, this one is for my brother, and I put it in my pocket. And this one's for my sister, and I put it in my other pocket. And I started naming every person that I was going to give a piece of gum to. Next thing I know, like, it was too much work, and so I just started taking handfuls of gum and putting it in my pockets. And when I filled my front pockets, I said, well, I might as well fill the back because there are so many people, and I have so many friends that I probably should just have enough for everyone. I don't want anyone to feel left out. 
so I filled my pockets. I had bubble gum, you know, front, back, everywhere. And I walked out, and I was so excited about sharing what I had just received or permanently borrowed, however you want to look at it. Um, I walk out, and I get in the station wagon, my mom's station wagon, the same one I told you last week that I drove. One thing I didn't tell you, this is kind of cool. When my mom would turn on the heat, it would smoke. And so we would have to open the, open the triangular window to let all the smoke out when we drive it. But anyway... I got in the station wagon, and I was telling my mom, listen, I was thinking last night about how much I love all these people, and I wanted to do something for them, and so I decided that I would give them some bubble gum, and we're having this conversation down the road, it's not very far from my house, and we pull into the garage, and it's dawned on her that I have just robbed the stop and rob, <laughs> and I was like, whew, you know, but I just, she said, hun, where did you get the gum? And she said, how did you pay for it? And I said, what do you mean pay for it? I just took it. And so we get out of the car, and we go out, and she says, empty your pocket. And I mean, I wanted to say, you mean pockets? Because, like, you know, they're all full. And I can remember, it was so embarrassing. I'm pulling out this gum, and, like, gum is just falling all over the ground. It's going everywhere. And it was really an embarrassing moment. And I'll never forget two things my mom did. She turned the back of that station wagon. She took that steel bumper and turned it into a sacred altar. And she said, son, I need you to kneel down right here behind the station wagon. I need you to pray for God's forgiveness because you need it. You just robbed the stop and rob. And so I did. And it was really embarrassing. There's nothing weirder than being like with spiritual moments with your parents. I don't know why they were weird then, but it was weird being behind this crusty old station wagon using the steel bumper as a sacred altar. And I remember praying for God's forgiveness. And then she said, get up. We're going back to the stop and rob. So we went back to the stop and rob, and she made me put all the gum in my pockets, put it on the counter. I said to the attendant, I took all this gum, wanted to do it out of generosity and kindness. Apparently, I didn't know you had to pay for it. I was pretty young. And so she made me apologize. She made me apologize to the attendant. And the attendant was like, whatever, I don't care. Have the gum, kid. You know, um, and that was kind of a humiliating moment in my life. I remember that. But one thing my mom did not do, one thing that I loved about my mom, my mother was a great mother. One thing that she, I am a mama's boy, you can say that, yes. Uh, but she, she did one thing that I thought was so great. She did not allow what I did to define me. She did not allow what I had done to define who I was in that moment. She did not allow that moment in my life to define the rest of my life. In fact, she didn't look at me and she didn't say, listen, son, you are a thief, you are a convict, you are a criminal, and you are never allowed in our house. No, she saw me as her son in that moment. And she still loved me, and she, even though it wasn't a proud parent-worthy moment, even though she wasn't excited that I had just robbed the stop and rob, she knew that deep down that's not who I was as a person. And so... What I love about my mom is she did not define me by what I had done. Now, here's what concerns me today. Here's what concerns me about me. Here's what concerns me about you. Is that so often in life, this is what is true, that we define our lives by what we do. We define our lives by what we do in life. In fact, here's a deeper truth. That our identity is in our doing. That our identity is in our doing. And here's what's interesting about how we like to express our identity to other people. We use statements called I am statements. 
In fact, if you sign up for a social media account, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Facebook, whatever it may be, when you sign up and you begin to fill out that profile setting, right, you begin to write things in about who you think you are. And we define I am statements by what we do. We say things like this, oh, I'm an outdoorsman or I'm an outdoors woman. And we say that, is that, is that correct? I, it sounds good to me. Uh, I'm an outdoorsman because why? Because I hike. Or I'm a coffee connoisseur. Why? Because I drink coffee like it's Kool-Aid. Some of us are students, and the reason we are students is because we go to school. Some of us would say that we are gardeners, and the reason why we are gardeners is because we work in the garden. And so, so often when you look at social media pages and when you look at your friends' pages, what you find is people will say, I am, and then they name what they are based upon what they do in life. And so here's my question. What happens when you stop doing those things? What happens when you stop hiking? What happens when you stop gardening? What happens when you stop going to school? Students keep going to school, but if you did... If you did, I would call the truancy up. No, I wouldn't. Uh, anyway, I'd invite you over for dinner. But anyway, uh, if you stopped going to school, would you be a student? And here's the reality. Here's the reality. When we say I am, when we say I am, we define it by what we do. But when we stop doing, we are no longer. We are no longer. Now, here's what's interesting about our faith. Here's what's interesting about God and this relationship with Jesus. There are reasons why people decide to follow Jesus. There are reasons why people decide not to follow Jesus. And there are reasons why, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, you feel like in your relationship with God, this is a continuous struggle over and over and over again, and you feel like you just can't get over the hump whenever it comes to your faith with God. And what the problem is, is that many of us define our relationship with God by what we do. You know this. We define our relationship with God by what we do. In fact, there's a dirty little phrase in the church, and many of us would not think it's dirty. Many of you have said it before. I've said it before. There's a dirty little phrase that we say in the church, and um, we think it's good. We've always thought it's good. And if you've been around church people or you've been in the church for any period of time, you've heard this before. And the phrase starts like this. I love it. Remember, I am statements we think are based upon what we do. It says, we always say, I am, you ready for this? I am a sinner. That's how we define ourselves in our relationship with God. I am a sinner saved by grace. Now, what strikes me about that comment is many of us, if we've been in the church for a while, we would hoot and holler and say, "Woohoo! yeah, I'm saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But the problem with this statement is, philosophically, what is wrong with this statement is that we are taught over and over that we are not as we ought. This is it. We are taught over and over that we are not as we ought. And we are so focused on sin in life. We are so focused on sin in life. In fact, when I was growing up as a kid and I went to the church and I was sitting where you're sitting, I've been in your shoes and the pastor's preaching hellfire and brimstone. Everything is focused on our sin. And I'm consistently, consistently walking around worried about my sin. In fact, maybe you've done this before. Maybe you've done this before. But you would pray at night over and over and over again that God would forgive you so you wouldn't go to hell. Anybody pray this? And so what we get is a bunch of people who are consistently sorry about their sin, but they're just a bunch of sorry Christians. 
I'm sorry. When we're always sorry about our sin, we're just a bunch of sorry Christians. Some of you are getting the pun intended in that. It is intended. Yes, very much so. But here's the problem with that teaching. The fundamental teaching of I am a sinner is it consistently leads to failure. Because you're defining yourself by what you do. In fact, here is the deeper problem with that. The fundamental teaching of you are a sinner, that I am a sinner, consistently leads to failure, but it also leads to a false identity. You see, we have created in the church an identity crisis, an identity crisis because we have assumed the label that we are what we do in life. And so, as we've been discovering over the last weeks, Jesus, as you would imagine, has something to say about this identity issue, this identity crisis that you and I struggle with. In fact, we've been saying this over the last eight weeks, that our understanding of God has to be consistent with the God that Jesus reveals. That our understanding of God has to be consistent with the God Jesus reveals. And so today, we're going to look at a few words written by a man named John, the words of Jesus, written by a man named John. Now, if you're new to the church, never been in the church, again, so glad you're here, but there are four accounts, just so you know who John is, four accounts of the Gospels, simply meaning good news, and it's just about writing the Jesus, uh, the life of Jesus. And John is interesting because John follows Jesus everywhere he goes, and so he has insight and he has knowledge into conversations that many of us do not, and many other writers do not. But here's what's really interesting about today. John resonates with our current problem. John resonates with our identity issue, and here's why. You see, when John became a disciple of Jesus, and we often make jokes in the church that they were the disciples, and the world kind of, they kind of labeled them as that. They weren't smart, they weren't educated, they weren't worthy, they weren't capable of being Jesus' disciples, yet Jesus chooses like the low of the low. And what well, the problem for John is, is much of his life, he is being told, he is being told over and over and over who he is, and he's being defined by the world by what he does. And so John writes, I love it, later in his account, we're not going to be looking at this today, but later, John writes in his account, he says this, he says, it goes deeper than this, and I want you to know that I'm writing this to let everybody know that Jesus says, I am I am the one he loves. In fact, John wants us to know today that I am statements go deeper than what you do. I am statements go deeper than what you do. In fact, what you do is not who you are. And so John wants us. He kind of stands in the gap for us today. And he, he's sitting here writing this story. He's writing this, remembering and reminding us that, listen, I've been where you are. I know what the struggle is. I know what people say about you and say about me. And we are not what they have said about us. So, here's what I love. He tells us about a time where Jesus is about to leave the world. He's nearing the end of his life. They're having this awesome dinner together. And Jesus comes up and he's, he, Jesus knows. Jesus knows that after he dies, there's going to be an identity issue. Because the guy who's supposed to be the Savior is now crucified. Listen, he's not the Savior if he's not alive. If he's crucified, he's not alive. And so he says, I know that you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle because people, people are going to hate you. They're going to hate you. And you're going to have an identity crisis. So, Jesus says to his disciples, he says this. 
He says, you are, you are the branch, and I am the vine. He says, you are the branch, and I am the vine. If you remain in me, I will remain in you. And listen to this. He says, you will produce good fruit. For those of you looking where we are, we're in John 15. Uh, I forgot it on the screen today, but I apologize. But he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will produce good fruit. And I love what Jesus says. He says, I am. I am. And Jesus wants his disciples to understand that there is a different level of life that we live when we assume a different kind of I am. And so I've been thinking about this this week. Um, Jesus moves it a bit deeper for us. He says, your identity is not in what you do, it is in who I am. Your identity is not in what you do, but it is in who I am. Now, I've been trying to, to figure this out. I mean, my mind has works overtime on this. A different category, a different kind of existence. There are categories in life that are not dependent upon what you do. I think, generally, I'm a fairly decent father. Um, I, I, I do love my kids most days. Um, I'm nice to them most of the time. Uh, I have my moments. Um, but I play with them. I read to them. I hang out with them. I mean, I feel like, for the most part, I'm a very good father. Now, now here's the truth, whether you like it or not. If I moved away, if I moved to California or somewhere out west or whatever and decided to never come back, and I never fed my kids, I never took care of my kids, never gave a check to my kids, never did anything for them, whether you like this or not, I am still their you get this, because, see, whether you're a good father or a bad father, yeah, that's based upon what you do. But at the heart of who I am, because biologically, biologically, at the heart of who I am, I am still their father. This is kind of what Jesus is saying. Not not very good example, but it goes deeper than what you do. Same as if you were a daughter, right? Ladies, we've been in this, this position before. Uh, you know, you, you got too much makeup on when you're younger and your mom's yelling at you. Or you come down for that dance and your dad says, absolutely not. Go back upstairs and change those clothes. And, um, and you just decide, well, fine, well, I'm leaving. I'm going to walk out of the house. My sister used to say this all the time. She said, fine, I'm leaving. I'm never coming back. And my mom would always say, well, that's fine, but you can leave the way you came into this world, butt naked. And she never left. She never left. But listen, based upon that, my, how you are as, are as a daughter, based upon what you do, you are still your parent's child. You are still a daughter. And so Jesus wants to say to us today, when you are rooted in me, when you get your energy, when you get your life from me, there is something more happening than what you do, but rather it's about who I am. And when we say, when we say, I am the branch I am the branch. We are doing something deeper because I am statements go deeper than what we do. So when you can claim this, when you can stand up and say, I am who God says I am, I am who God makes me, you are now addressing a deeper issue. You're addressing a deeper issue, and here's why. 
The question I want to ask you is this. When you take on this I am identity, the question you're answering is, am I lining up or am I living in? Am I lining up or am I living in? Now, I'm going to work through those just for a couple minutes here. Lining up is what you do. Lining up is what you do in life. In fact, you remember this, right? When you were a kid and you were in elementary school, remember when you were in elementary school, and your teacher told you, said, go to the door and line up. Now, you knew you were going to gym class, music class, some other math class, or, uh, or an assembly or an event that you didn't want to go to. Maybe, maybe you just didn't want to be there. But either way, your teacher told you to line up. And what do you do? You line up, and when the lead person walks out the door, you just simply follow the person in front of you. And this is the problem, is that lining up simply pulls you along. Lining up simply pulls you along. This is why a lot of you, I don't know if you know this, but this is why a lot of us hate our jobs. It's because for us, our values, our mission, much of who we are maybe doesn't line up with where we work, but where we work simply pays the bills. And so every day you come in and you stand under a boss, you stand under a, a, a supervisor that you may not like or a company that you may not like working for, but you line up every day to do the same thing and you are pulled along in that company, not because you want to, but because you have to. And you do what you have to do to get along. That's what lining up is. And I think that many of us line up in our faith. Right? You just think, and I just think, and I, I'll be honest, I struggle with this too, that if I just simply do all the right things as a Christian, that I will somehow mysteriously begin to look like a Christian. And I can tell you, you can spend five minutes with me at my house. My wife would tell you, there are days that you do not look like a Christian, that you probably shouldn't even be the pastor of this church. Oh, yes. Trust me. So saying I am addresses this issue, but it also goes deeper. It goes into the living in issue. You see, living in is about getting our new identity. If lining up is simply about pulling you along, then living in is the power that pushes you toward. Yeah, living in is the power that pushes you toward. It is the power that produces life within you. In fact, there is something more going on with inside of you, and so you don't feel, you don't feel like you're being drugged along in something you don't understand, but rather you're being moved with purpose, and you're being moved into something that makes sense and aligns with who you are. So, the best example I can give is this when it comes to living in. If I were to invite you to my house for dinner, you were to come over, you would find that generally, generally speaking, uh, our house is very neat. It is very orderly. Things Janelle does a great job of putting things in place and making sure everything is right. It looks fairly perfect for the most part, other than the fans. Don't look at the fans. Uh, but the ceiling fans, yes. But for the most part, our house is fairly nice when you come over. Now, if you were to come during the week, show up on a Monday or Tuesday when I'm not expecting you or I didn't invite you, uh, this is what you're going to find. Say you've never been to my house before. You didn't know anything about me. You would walk into my house. Immediately, you would find uh, school bags and coats laying on the floor. You would make a right into our living room, and you would find kids' clothes all over the place being folded by my wife. 
you would go down the hall and you would find that in my kids' room there is hockey equipment and football equipment and books and Legos. And somehow they make their way into the hallway and out into the living room. And if you went into my basement, you would find scissors and glue and pieces of paper everywhere. In fact, it looks like the Christmas elf has been at our house half the time. I don't know who gives that kid a pair of scissors, but every morning I come down, the kid is taping, gluing something together. It's, it's fun, but hey, it is a mess. My point is this. If you didn't know anything about me and you showed up at my house, you would probably say, someone else lives here besides Chanel and Brad. In fact, I bet they have kids. You see, when we begin, when something is lived in, when somebody or something is lived in, it then takes on the very nature of the one residing within inside of it. And so our house, often throughout the week, yep, if you come over and we invite you, that's all fake. Typically it's a mess, not our doing, my kids doing. But you can tell, because my kids live in our house, live in it, that it takes on that very identity. It looks like kids live there. And so Jesus says, he says, I am the vine, you are the branch, and you have been grafted in to the vine. You have been given life. In fact, it is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. And when we allow Christ to live in us, we are no longer being pulled along, but we are being pushed toward. We are producing, as he says, fruit and life. And I think life becomes more meaningful, more meaningful when we begin, when we begin to assume the I am others. I am who God says I am. It is not based upon what we do. In fact, here's what I know about your decisions. Here's what I know about your decisions. The choices that I make and you make should be in light of who we are, not to, do, to determine who we will be. The choices that I make are in light of who I am and do not determine who I am. That is important. I say all that to say that when we accept I am's as not what we do, but who we are, there is something that changes with inside of you. Your life is transformed. In fact, God, this is what we're studying today, that God is the God of transformation. And the only way, the only way that I can help you understand what I mean when I talk about a God transforms is by showing you one of my favorite Disney movies, Moana. Now, I wish I could preach a whole series on Moana because uh, I love it that much. Um, but I think, I think at the heart of this video that I'm about to show you is exactly, is exactly what we're talking about. When we take on an I am identity and our lives are transformed. Watch this. Let her come to me. Oh. 
you, but I'm a sucker for Disney movies. Uh, I love Disney movies. Um, you know, I can remember when I first saw this, I remember, I, I thought to myself, is this kid appropriate? Like, holy moly. I mean, this scared me to death watching this, you know, like, demonic. But here's the thing. When I first watched that movie, I defined, I defined Tafiti by what she was doing. You get this, right? When we first watched this movie, we defined Tafiti by what she is doing. She looks angry, she looks demonic, she looks upset, she looks like she could just absolutely annihilate and kill someone. But the beauty of this story, the beauty of this story is Moana sees something deeper. She knows that this is not who she is deep down because you are not defined by what you do. Now, if, if you just tuned out for a second, because we had some awesome kids come in, and I love kids, so I'm glad you guys could be here this morning. What I need you to know today is you are not defined by what you do, but you are who God has transformed. You are not defined by what you do, but you are who God has transformed. So I don't know what narrative you're living out of. I don't know what story you've come from or where you've been in life, but maybe you have not experienced a God in your life who has transformed you. You're simply addressing the issues of what you do. In fact, I know this. You cannot be a sinner saved by grace. Because if sin is who you are, then Christ cannot be within you. And that's why we say we are alive in Christ because we have been transformed. It's good stuff, good stuff. This morning, yeah, you can clap. It's good. It's really good. Speaking of transformations, one of the things we do here is we celebrate people who have given their lives to Christ. We celebrate people who have acknowledged and want to publicly acknowledge that Christ has changed their life. And so we have invited our kids in because we want our kids to be part of this as well. We want them to see this, what happens when lives 